Uh, we are in chapter 5, um, particularly in verses 5 through 7, but I want to read the text to you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, although we covered already through verse uh, 4. So 1 Peter chapter 5, I'd like to read the first 11 verses. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sort gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we do delight in the instruction that you've given us through the Apostle Peter as he's written this epistle, and we thank you and praise you that you are strength and encouragement and comfort and our refuge in time of suffering and trials, and we thank you and praise you for the opportunity to look into the Word of God once again today, and we pray that as we read the Word that we would leave here challenged, but we would leave here as people who want to be, by your grace and your strength, doers of the word and not hearers only. So help us, Father, to apply the truths that we study together. Thank you for this opportunity, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've entitled this morning's message, Evidence of Where Our Confidence Really Is. As I just mentioned, the book is coming to a close. We have a few more messages in the book. But if there is one thing that we have certainly learned as a church and individually, I hope, first of all from the book, and also certainly from the experiences of life, it is that we will suffer. We may face persecution, but we certainly will suffer especially if we desire to live as a Christian. It is inescapable, and I believe personally that that will be on the increase even in this nation, and it is already there, but it will continue at a rapid pace, and I think we will see that. So it is a part of our life. We can't expect it, 
And as members of the body of Christ, we are made up of individual members, and uh, we have different responsibilities as we face suffering. And in our current context in 1 Peter, as he's been dealing with suffering and persecution throughout the book, he has addressed the fact that some are leaders in the local church, and we referred to that last week as God's assistance, and we expounded to you the first four verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. And we see in our context, and we'll deal with this in a moment, some are not leaders, but they are still part of the local assembly, and they need encouragement too, and they are facing trials and tribulations. But the question that I raised is, goes back to this, where is your confidence? Where is my confidence? Where is collectively our confidence for victory? Now, I, I will comment on this in a second, and I believe I know what you're going to say to yourself or would like to say out loud. But where does our confidence really lie in victory? Does it rely in people such as Peter, who has been encouraging these believers that are scattered and is an encouragement to us? Is our confidence ultimately in our leaders that are leading the local church and are leading in the past, our leaders of the future? Is it in ourselves? Is our confidence really in ourselves? Or even one step further, I'll take this, is our confidence in the fact that we have knowledge of the word of God. Not only in this church, but in this century, we certainly have the availability of the word of God unprecedented in any generation. And so there is the availability and we can spout Bible knowledge. And so is that our confidence? Is it in these areas? In reality, we all know, and this is probably what you would want to say, I'm sure, we realize that our confidence needs to be where? That was kind of a weak response, but that's okay. We need the time to wake up, I guess. But it needs to be in the Lord. It needs to be in God himself, right? Ultimately, that's where our confidence has to be. It has to be in him. No matter who we are, by the way, saved or unsaved, no matter who we are in this world, we all are in need of God and God's help. Uh, for example, even with the unsaved, all men have been created in the image and likeness of God. So even the very fact that we exist and all that exists around us, we are dependent upon God. Now, our flesh resists that and fights against it, which is why you come up with many of the philosophies that are in the world. But if we're honest, we entirely depend upon God. From one moment to the next, our very next breath is dependent upon him. And the very fact that we exist. And even when you come down to salvation, though man will come up with religion, though man will come up with methods of trying to appease or please God, even in the most simple and remote places of the world, we see some type of worship even when it's getting into sacrifice of human beings, they're trying to appease a God. No matter what man does, we cannot please him that way. We are dependent upon the grace of God and obviously pointing to the cross, the cross of Calvary and his loving us so much that he took it upon himself to send his son to die on the cross for sin so that we could have eternal life. We cannot obtain eternal life on our own. We cannot get into heaven on our own. We cannot be saved on our own, whatever terms that we want to put on there. 
we can't satisfy God with our goodness. Uh, and that's not saying that people can't do good acts, but we cannot justify our sin and who we are before a holy God. We're totally dependent upon him. And even when it comes to salvation, you know, there's a tendency. We trust in God, so we come to salvation, and then we know we have Bible knowledge that we're dependent upon God, and we realize that, but we begin to rely on our own strength, and we begin to rely on others, and, and we forget the fact, for example, just a quick summary that I gave it here, that we're totally dependent upon God. Why? Because we think of salvation and we think of Christ. It's his body. We saw last week in our study of uh, elders that it's his flock. It's not our flock. That leaders are his leaders. They're not just chosen by men or make themselves leaders. It's Christ's church. It's not our church. He is the one that's building the church, not us. We are participants. He uses us. We can be involved in sharing the gospel. We can be involved in being a light for Christ. But it is ultimately up to him to open up the heart of dead men and women and boys and girls who are blind to the things of Christ so that they can see. He's got to build his church. We're totally dependent. We're told that even in salvation, though we will be assured that we will reach perfection because, because what God has done in us, begun to do in us, he will perform it unto the day of Christ. But it's totally dependent on him because the scriptures make it very clear that it is God working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it is constant reminders to us that we are dependent upon God. And even in our text, God cares for us. And it's a good thing that he does. So we say that we know these things, and we say that I really want to be trusting in God, and that's where our confidence is. But can we truly say that in our life? And how can we know? How can we know? And this is the practicality of really what I want to deal with in the text. How can we know that truly in our suffering, in our persecution, our confidence is not in doctors, it's not in my ability, it's not in my Bible knowledge, it's not in my, the pastors, it's, it's not in my my parents, it's not in my siblings, but it's truly in God, and that's where I say it is. How can I know it? I think this text helps us a little bit with that because it gives us, it might not be viewed that way by you or by most of the commentaries that I took a look at, but I do think it gives us the evidences that can help us to know whether our confidence truly is in God, and he gives us three ways in our text here today that is relevant to us, and I'm going to take it from verse 5 through verse 7, since we left off in verse 4. 5 through 7 is our concentration for today in dealing with some evidences that can help us, I hope, to know that, yes, my confidence truly is in God, and I can be assured of that. Let me just simply mention the structure so we don't lose the context, because that's important to everything in understanding the scriptures, as you know. In verses 1 through 4, I just remind us of last week's message, Peter showed us that he had done, I mean, through Peter, God showed us that he does have assistants, and they are called elders. They are called under-shepherds. And there are people that God has placed, and there's qualifications for that, but in our text, he really gave us the instruction on how they were to carry out our regard being as an under-shepherd, the manner in which they were to do their work for God, and how they were to do that, and they were to keep focused 
and uh, such things as being examples and such things as we saw not being after money and uh, to really exercise the oversight uh, of them of a voluntary nature and we explain that and then you come to verse 5 and Peter deals with the rest of the body he's dealt with the leadership and it might not seem that way to you first but he singles out the young men and then he also talks to everybody in the passage and the question if you weren't here last week it would help if you had that background but the question is why single out the younger men there is a definite reason that he does that I believe first of all it is a contrast he said elders and we dealt with the terminology last week it is an older person it should be a more mature person certainly in the Lord and it has somewhat to do with age but it's not just that it's dealing with the leadership as is obvious from the first four verses but he contrasts with that in verse 5 you younger men and there's no question there's a contrast between the older and the younger why is that well I believe it's intentional by the Lord to single them out before he deals with all the congregation and there's some reasons for that I believe he doesn't tell us by the way the context so this is just Pastor Dan so you understand that uh, it doesn't tell us he just singles out the younger men on the positive side for you younger men that are in the assembly right now I think as we look to young people there's some good things about it usually the younger people are pretty bright now often the adults criticize them but it is the younger minds that are pretty alert and pretty bright there's fresh thinking usually in a younger mind uh, that's where we get new ideas from and, and often the very good ideas and certainly younger people are full of energy and there's a lot of positive things however there is also the other side and the challenge that young people face and what is that because of their independence self-confidence and it's particularly true with younger people you can be so overconfident in yourself that you don't need anybody else or you think that you know better we've all experienced that I finally found out when I got older I do not I did not know and I don't know more than my parents knew however as I was growing up they didn't know anything and I knew everything and that is common with every generation uh, because newer things come along and new ideas and we particularly when we're younger think we know better we don't think that we need structure we just need to be let go we know what we're supposed to do we don't need any structure when we're younger um, usually we are the ones that see the problems with when I say we I'm not younger anymore but when I was uh, what happens with the younger folks is they look at the older folks even in a local church are in their family and they see all the mistakes that they made or all the flaws that are there the sin that's there and you know they are better than that and they're going to be better um, and so there's that tendency at all this doesn't mean that younger people always cause problems which sometimes they're accused of but usually they're the most aggressive people and they're usually pretty headstrong and Paul, uh, Peter understood that and I think that's part of why he singles them out because their tendency is not going to be to do what he addresses immediately and what is it the first evidence if you will this morning that you're truly trusting in the Lord during persecution or during a trial how can I know how can I know well he's the first one and it goes to the younger people but it's really for all of us as we'll see in a moment you younger men and I'll deal with the word likewise in a minute be subject 
to your elders. What is that? Submission. Now, submission is very difficult for all of us. And we're going to see this morning that we need it. But particularly, younger people need it. They need to be submissive. When we hear submissiveness, most of the time, especially in Bible circles, wives come to mind. The wives are to be submissive, and the attack goes on the women, on their submissiveness. But we're going to see this morning that it's a lot further than that. Um, this idea of submission, or to submit that he says to the younger people, is to rank yourself under. It is to put yourself under someone else's authority. It is a military term. You've heard that term used. And there's sometimes misunderstanding. Some people think that when you hear the word submission, it means you just let people walk over you. That's not the case at all. It's sometimes people have the impression that when you hear submissiveness, that means that I can't express my opinions because my opinions don't count. That is false and that's phony. That's not what submission is at all. Submission doesn't mean you're, you're discounting your personhood or you can't give input. You should. But what it does mean is when it comes to an important decision or it comes to situations, and even when there is disagreement, rather than fighting and rather than causing a greater problem, you basically rank yourself under that position because they have the authority to do it. And you submit to it. To even use the military term, uh, to help you to understand it, I, I was trying to think of many practical applications. And the one that came to my mind was one I think we're all familiar with, and that's Gettysburg. You say, how in the world? What do you mean Gettysburg? Uh, because if you understand the history of Gettysburg, what happened, there were many, many good men in the South and leaders and generals who died. Do you know why? Well, it's obvious they get killed. They died because they were willing to submit to General Lee. Ultimately, they discussed things, they looked at stuff, and they ranked themselves under, and they said, he's the general. He says, charge, go after that hill. We're going to get massacred. Charge. Now, you say, that's foolishness. No, it's not. That's the idea behind the term. The idea behind the term. And the, anyone in the military, they understand that today. You know, to take something, I, you know, this is going to be a difficult thing, but I've got to do it. I put myself under. And what he does is he, first of all, goes back to the younger people, and he wants them to see that you, and he emphasizes the younger, you particularly are to submit. You are to put yourselves under the leaders and not be causing a problem for them all the time and realize your position and realize where you are because younger people generally do not like authority over them. They do not like to be told what to do. And so one of the evidences in their life would be is God working in my life as a young person? Well, you can ask yourself that, and it should be seen by you being willing to submit to your parents. That starts at home. Willing to submit to authority in a local church. It starts by younger people submitting to the experience and authority. But is it just for them? No, it's really for everybody as well. He emphasizes the young, but you notice he says, likewise, and then he's going to say uh, right there, and all of you, and we'll get to the humility in a minute. But that word likewise might be a small little term, but it means in the same manner. And I want you to catch this. 
He emphasizes the young people, but it has application to every single one of us in this assembly, starting with myself. The concept of submission, just by using that simple term in like manner or in same manner. Why? Isn't that what he just told the elders? The elders are to what? Submit themselves. To who? The chief shepherd. The elders are responsible to submit themselves to the chief shepherd. I want you to see what else he said in this book. Go back quickly to chapter 2. Turn with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at the theme. Verse 12. 1 Peter chapter, 12, uh, chapter 2. Um, I meant verse 13. I put 12 in my notes when I copied it. But it's verse 13. Submit yourselves, why? For the Lord's sake, to every human institution. It is not easy. Remember we studied that? It is not easy for me. I'm being honest. It is not easy for me as a person to submit to our current government with, with some of the things they're doing. Nevertheless, I have a responsibility to pray for my government, and I have a responsibility to submit to the laws of the land, whether I agree with them or not, unless they go contrary to what God's word explicitly says. I have that responsibility. And Peter's been saying, look, rank yourselves under government leaders. Go to verse 18, same chapter. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And we said that that was slaves, but we also pointed out as it was dealing with the household, we gave practical application even at work. You and I have a responsibility to rank ourselves under the boss at work. That's their position. And I might not like them. They might be tough bosses. We've already seen that. However, I have a responsibility to rank myself under and to be submissive if God's working in my life. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, in the same way, there's that same term that we're seeing right now in Peter chapter 5. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. How? Just as to government, just as servants are to their masters, so wives to be submissive to their own husbands. And you say, well, that's great. What about the husbands? In verse 7 of chapter 3, you husbands in the same way, that's the same terminology we're seeing in chapter 5, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's submissiveness to their thinking, to their needs, to the way they are. And what I'm trying to get at, when we're in chapter 5, the whole concept is that we are all to be submissive because that is a sign that God is working. When we're able to just turn around and submit. And when it comes to the leadership, it is one of the most difficult things to do. And we're all called to do it. Let me just give you a couple of verses. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to see this. So am I really trusting in God? Well, are we submissive? When you're going through a trial, you're going through a tribulation, and you're getting instruction even from leadership or God's working and you read the word of God and it says something. Uh, are you resisting that? Are you able to submit to it? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says this. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? It's really because the Lord says so, but he says, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. The leaders are going to be subject to the, the, the Lord. And what happens? You are to obey your leaders and to submit to them. Submission is a sign of God's working. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. A couple more. In 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. 
in verses 12 and 13. What have you got? But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you, see? Where? In the Lord, and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work's sake. Live in peace with one another. That is the concept of submission. Knowing your leaders and submitting. In First Peter, uh, sorry, First Timothy chapter 5, right nearby, verse 17. I'll just give you two more. First Timothy chapter 5, in verse 17. It says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. That is the idea, again, of submission. And then one last one, I won't turn to it, but I had in my notes was Corinthians. In chapter 16, it deals with that as well. Okay, what is the point? The point is this, that all of us are to submit, and I will finish with this verse, Ephesians chapter 5. Turn with me there. Ephesians chapter 5. As far as this point. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. Everybody knows 22. Wives, be subject to your husbands. But how about verse 21? And be subject to who? One another. How? In the fear of Christ. There's a sign. Even when we're going through trials, there's an evidence. Am I able to be subject? And it might sound simple to you, but it's not. As I said, that even comes down to when I'm reading the word of God. And I see what God wants. Am I able to submit to that? Or am I going through this trial or tribulation, but I just won't do what God wants me to do? You're not submitting. You come to leadership, and leadership gives you guidance and advice, and you don't even agree with it or whatever. Is there a submissiveness and respect toward the leadership? That's what he's dealing with. He's dealt with the elders. He deals with the younger. And he says, likewise, just like everybody else is to be subject, you are to be subject to the elders. And we're to see it that way. And we are not because of their perfection, not because of anything else other than God's authority and the way he's working in that situation. If we have our confidence in God, this is the point, the first evidence will be we are a people that is submissive, not resistive. And most of the time in our life, if we're honest, we fight. We fight. We don't like it. We don't like what we hear. We don't like what we see. It happens with younger people at home. It happens with younger people in the assembly. And it happens with every one of us. We don't want to resist. We want to resist. We don't want to subject ourselves. But then he says this. In all of you, he gives us the second point. In all of us are to do what? We're to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Why do we have pride? I mean, why do we not submit? That's what I wanted to say. I'll tell you why we don't submit to somebody else. It's pride. When I'm unwilling to submit, it's pride. When you're unwilling to submit, whether it be to God or somebody else. And you say, but they're wrong. But if they have the position over you, you can discuss it. Doesn't mean you can't. But are you willing to be lowly in mind? That's what it means. There are no exceptions. He says, all of you, not only were the younger to be subjective to the elders in the church, but as I just showed you, that idea of subjectiveness has been filled throughout Peter, and we are all to do that. But also, all of us are to be involved with humility. There are no 
exceptions. There's no exemptions from this. Romans chapter 12 makes it very clear that we are all to put on humility because God resists the proud. Now, when he says clothe, that is the putting on by a secure covering. That's what the word means. And many have translated it like with an apron. That's why I went back to the passage in John chapter 13. In fact, most commentaries do. They say the illustration of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do? He humbled himself. Here he is, King of kings, Lord of lords, their savior. And what did he do? He got up from the table. People should have been washing his feet. And he girded himself with a towel. That's where this term, that's kind of the idea. He clothed himself. Well, let me try to illustrate it this way to you. Uh, people that work in shops and sometimes they don't want to get their clothes and they have this rubber apron or a special type of apron. They put it over them to protect them from the elements as they work so it won't get on them. Or wives in a kitchen, I guess that's what the apron's supposed to be for, to protect them as they're working on uh, cooking and, and so forth. That's the idea. He was clothing. And we had to be surrounded with, securely by the way, that was the idea, we ought to be surrounded with an apron of humility about us. Uh, and that will come when we're submissive as well. We ought to be submissive one to another. And we are also to have a humble mind one toward another. Over and over in scripture, this quote that God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble comes out of the book of Proverbs. And there's many verses uh, Proverbs 3, uh, 34 is really where it comes from, but I want you to look at two others. Proverbs 6, 17. Let's go there. Proverbs 6, 17. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17, haughty eyes and a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. What is that? You remember this from two weeks ago? Look at verse 16. These are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And what is the first one? Pride. Haughty eyes. I fail at this. And you may be sitting there and saying, yes, you do, but I guarantee you do too. That's not an excuse. But the idea is we can be haughty. We can be proud. Everything's got to be done my way. It's the only way. It's the only right way. If you do something differently, it's not right. That's pride. Or something happened and you've got to show the people why they did it all wrong. Nothing but pride. And we can't function that way. And it's interesting that he's talking in a book of suffering. And suffering, and he says, basically, we ought to have a humble spirit. You look at the context of everything that was studied. Even when you have a boss that doesn't, isn't kind to you, you still ought to be submissive, and you ought to have a humble spirit and mind toward that person. Just the opposite of that, before I go, I'm not going to go to the other one in Proverbs right now. Go, to, go to with me to Luke 18. Let's see just the opposite of that, if you want to see the concept of understanding humility. Luke 18. Luke 18. In Luke chapter 18, in verses 11 and 12. This is a parable. 
You can see that in verse 9. They go into the temple. People know this very well. And one person's praying with himself. Notice that. Praying, what does that tell you? Well, if he's in the temple praying, he thinks he's reaching God. And notice the Pharisee stands in verse 11 and was praying to himself. And yet he uses the word, God, I thank you. But watch the pride, lack of humility, no submissiveness, really. I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You want to see humility? Here's a broken person, verse 13. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling his humility, even to lift up his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Entirely different approach. You get humility in one part by a religious leader. And that's easy to point to and say, yes, all of our leaders, our elders, for example, in the church, sometimes that's in their life. How about our lives? We pointed others. And I'm glad I don't do that. I'm glad I'm not like that family and what they did. I'm glad that I didn't get involved in those things. And all of a sudden, we think we're very humble. No. These are very practical situations. And I do believe that as Peter's pointing out to the young people and to all of us, as he says in the assembly, to all believers, we ought to have that submissiveness to the leadership, but also we ought to have humility toward one another. We ought to have a humble spirit. None of us are better off than anyone else. It doesn't matter where we're serving in the body of Christ. It doesn't matter what God's called us to. We've all been saved by the grace of God, and we should be humble toward one another. And we need to treat one another that way. And you notice what he says as he expands on humility. He says in verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He'll exalt you in proper time. Maybe you are right in some situations. Maybe you don't deserve what you're getting and you're under the suffering. But we need to humble ourselves and be of a lowly mind and realize that God is in control. He knows what he's doing. And since he knows what he's doing, I am to submit myself even to God's hand. And let him lift me up in the right time. When will that be? It might not be till you get to heaven. It might not be till after you lose your life. But let God lift you up and look to him. Which brings us to the third one. And that's the verse that everybody knows. And that's verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What's the third one? Trust and obedience. The way we can know that God's working in our life when there's trials and difficulties in our life, when we are suffering, whether justly or unjustly, when the trials are there and, and seem to be overbearing, is am I submissive, first of all? Secondly, hand in hand with that, my spirit, my attitude, is it one of humility? Is it one of trusting in God? That's the third one, so that I can obey. We can trust that God really knows what he's doing. Have you ever had situations, if we're honest, we've all probably had some, that we just don't understand what God's doing? We don't understand why this has happened or how many things are going on and can we take it anymore? 
You know, Job got to that place, by the way, if you look closely at what he said. Yes, he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. I came in naked. I'm leaving naked. But also he was questioning because he couldn't find anything. And what this verse is that we quote all the time, casting all your anxiety on him, that's exactly what we need to, have, we need to do. In our trials, we need to put it on him, to cast it, to throw it, to put it literally on him. It's illustrated in Luke chapter 19 by a cloak. The same term is used as he casted that cloak onto a donkey. And that's what it is. He covered it, put it right on him, put the burden on the donkey, if you will. And in our case, we are to cast our cares, our anxieties. Like what? Do you get discouraged? Do you get despair in your personal life? Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's mental suffering. Maybe it's family members that are going through some things and you don't understand why. How about anxiety or worry? We know the scripture. I'm not to worry about anything. If God cares for the flowers, he'll care for me. But do we really cast and trust God and, and turn around and say, I don't understand, but I'm willing because God is good. We say that. Because God is good and I know that my Redeemer lives and I know whatever he's doing is for my benefit, even though I don't understand it. That's real trust. That's really casting the care. It's not, I can't understand what God's doing. It's, I can't understand, but I'm trusting God. It's putting it on him. Discontentment. Questioning the things of God. We ought to trust him. Turn with me to Psalm 55. Psalm 55. We all know David. Two things that usually everybody knows about David. One is that he killed Goliath. You're still here. He's, he killed Goliath, and the other one is he had a sin with, and everybody knows those things about David. That's only a small part of his life. He was a man that trusted God. He was a man that was king. He was a man that went through very, many trials. It's interesting in Psalm 55. Let me read the end of it first. Go down to verse 22, because it's the same type of language we find in Peter. It says, cast your burden upon the Lord. And he will sustain you. Put it on him. And why, why are we able to do that? I didn't get to that in Peter, but let me just give it a quick. Because he cares for you. There is no one. We've sung that song many times. There is no one that cares for you more than Jesus Christ. He laid his life down. And he does care for you. And if he cares, then I can cast. I know that I'm coming and putting my cares on him because he's concerned. We have to be honest. Sometimes things come up in our lives, and what happens, we look, and we say, all these people are praying to God, all these people's burdens, some are worse than mine. I shouldn't go to the Lord. No. Any parent knows that. I might be wrong. I only have one of my children in front of me right now. I might be wrong, but I honestly, and my wife can correct me if I'm wrong, I can't ever remember one of my children, ever, all my grandchildren for that matter, that ever would come toward me and want to talk about something or, or, or difficulty, and I would say to them, I want nothing to do with it. Why? We want them to come. The Lord cares for us. He wants us to come with our difficulties and to cast those anxieties, the despair, the worry on him, because he cares. And it says here in Psalm 
55:22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Where did that come from? Go back to verse 12. This, in the context of the psalm, let me tell you, it's David's psalm. What happened in David's life? He undeservedly was having his life threatened by the king. Actually, David was supposed to be king. Saul wanted him dead. And he was chasing him. And many times he was running for his life. Didn't know how he'd survive. And then as he's running, he even had his own soldiers at times turn and say, we got to get rid of David. This is all his fault that we're suffering. Our family's been lost. This happened, that happened. And everything was being put on David. And David comes in verse 12 and he says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. I could bear that. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion. You'll remember how this is quoted even in relationship to Christ. But as you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, who we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God, in the throne. Look at that. He's looking and he is running for his life. That's the context. And he says, it's coming from people that I've loved, from people I've served with, from people I've been with. And what does he ultimately do by the time he comes to the end of the psalm? He casts his burden on the Lord. He's got to trust the Lord, even in that situation. Is that not what Peter has been giving us with the example of Jesus Christ? Where he told us in chapter 2 that when he was reviled, he didn't revile again. He entrusted himself to the one that judges righteously. When Peter denied him, the Lord understood that and he trusted it to the Father. When you had the situation where Judas Iscariot, which we saw, betrayed him, even in that midst of what we saw in John 13, the Lord knew that and he knew it was coming. He cast his care on the Father. When he was on the cross and he was being criticized by those that were dying next to him and told to come on, get yourself down and save us, what did he do? He committed himself to the Father. And so what I am saying is, how can we know? And I'll close with this. How can we know whether we're trusting the Lord when the trials are there? What type of spirit do we have? Is it a submissive spirit? Is it a humble spirit? Is it one that questions or is it one that casts, casts even the anxieties, even the worry, the despair, and the discouragement on the Lord because we really know no matter what the outcome. He cares for me. And it says it right there. He cares for you. Do you believe that? Yeah, I believe God cares for me. Are you really trusting when you don't understand? Is your spirit such that you're not going to be a complainer? But with humility, humbleness of mind, not try to come up with your excuses or who you are or what you've done or whatever, but be turning to the Lord. How about a spirit of submissiveness that when... I don't agree, even when it's the leadership, because that's the context. Even when it's the leadership or it's the parents and I don't agree, it doesn't mean I can't talk, but yes, I'm willing to rank myself under 
and even go to the death if I have to because that's what God would have to do. That's not something we do. But in the midst of trials, we are to do that. Second part of the message comes, actually, it'll be in two weeks. But in the rest of the verse is how we need to be practical about it. There's still some things we got to do. But it all starts with, if I truly am trusting in the Lord, I will have a submissive spirit, a humble spirit, and I will cast my care on him, realizing he will take care of me, though I don't understand the difficulty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you and praise you for the word of God. Lord, and trials do come with life. We all experience them. In the Christian life, as we take stands, they get even greater. Help us, Father, all to examine. We ought to be submissive the one to the other. Help us to start with me. To be submissive to you. To be submissive to you in my life. And to be submissive to one another in the local assembly. To be ready to listen and even to rank ourselves out and under other people. Help us to have a humble spirit and not to be so proud that we think we're always right. Our way is the only way. We're the only ones that do the things right. But help us, Lord, to have a humble spirit. And even when trials and tribulations come, help us to have a humble spirit in that, realizing that you're working. And then help us to trust. Trust in you, the one who was an example through Christ, the one who loves us and cares for us, so that we do indeed cast all of our burdens on you, realizing, Father, that you are faithful, realizing that you're working them for our good, and help us to look for exaltation not now, but in your timing, in your presence, when we, receive, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ. Guide us now, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.